Welcome to the Roll Bama Roll podcast. I'm Wesley Gullett. As always, I'm joined by Brad Canning. We'll be joined by our friend Mark Burnett for the entirety of the episode, which means you get less Brad and more of someone else. Welcome. Um, <laughs> Brad, I know that you read this, but Mark, you happened to see the article published by the Ole Miss newspaper right before uh, kickoff Saturday, right? Yeah, I, I saw it. I saw it. Okay, good. So for anyone listening who happened to miss it, the title was pretty direct. It was Nick Saban overrated as a head coach. It's by Ben Miller of the Daily Mississippian. And we're, we're going to go through this thing piece by piece. Like Before I dive into this, I just kind of want to set up how bad this is. Like I'm sure at some point during, the say, the 1984 NBA draft, there was some columnist in Portland who was like praising the Trailblazers for taking Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. And this is worse than that. So the lead-in is probably my favorite part. This is it. Quote, Among the madness, there is but one sentence that few have been brave enough to say. Nick Saban is an overrated head coach. So let's just start with that. How hilarious is it that Ben Miller starts it off by dubbing himself as brave? (laughs) I mean, listen, if you're going to go out there, uh, you know, and fire up the the hot take cannon, you gotta you gotta pat yourself on the back a little bit. So I actually think (laughs) that one's that was probably smart. He was like, "Hey guys, look at me. I'm I'm smarter than you." So. uh, uh, listen to my take. My first reaction was wondering if old Don Wolken uh, is taking an undergrad course at Ole Miss <laughs> right now. So um, it, it was pretty uh, pretty uh, trivial of who the hell wrote it uh, as a anonymous uh, source almost, basically. Different yeah, name. Yeah, the brave part, like, it took me out. If you're making a list of brave Americans, like, where does Ben rank here? It's like the, it's like the, the Marines, the SEAL, like 9-11 first responders, and then yeah, ben, ben Miller somewhere right in the middle. Yeah. He, he's, he's top five. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ben views Atlanta as you know, like as a college football hub. He views that as Normandy, and he's trying to storm the beach right now. So, um, but if it would have said ha- uh, hashtag Jacked, that's when I knew it was Don. Um, <laughs> All right, so it basically goes on. He's like, what I'm not willing to say is anything that would make it sound like Saban is even close to being the greatest college football coach to ever live. So he says, fast forward to today. The unprecedented success that Alabama saw almost immediately upon Saban's arrival created a machine that the rest of the nation has yet to figure out how to stop. Saban had an incredible streak of recruiting that turned a mediocre team into a team that for many years now has required very minimal coaching. Wait, let me, can I stop you right there? Yeah. This this is I don't know how this has come up because uh, I remember Colin Cowherd or somebody maybe not Cowherd I want to I don't want to put that opinion on him if it wasn't him but somebody said that Saban was a little overrated too because he gets the best the the best players oh that's what it was it was when CBS put out that an article mm-hmm. coaches attacking anonymously attacking like some of the other coaches saying who was overrated and people talked about Saban being overrated as if recruiting isn't fifty percent. Or more of the job. Like, I just do not understand that. Yeah, it's literally part of the job. It's what you are supposed to do. You're supposed to get the best players on your team. <laughs> that, oh. That's the stupidest thing. I, I know it's like, it's cool. You're like, oh, look at look at this Goliath program versus like a, a Washington or a Mich- Michigan State who does well, but they don't get a lot of five stars. Look at these guys doing it with the developed three stars. But it's that's why you see those guys in the playoffs every now and then and not all the time. Like, I just I've never understood that. You're supposed to want the best players, and you're supposed to go out and get those guys. That, that whole entire network with Colin, and, and don't feel bad for trying to put that on him, even if he didn't say it, because he's got shit takes to war. Um, <laughs> But but that whole network, I mean, that week, you know, old Skip Bayless, which I'm going to tell you, I, I had built a rocket in the past for a special teams coordinator when our kicking game was even worse, our punting game was worse. Uh, I'm going to put Skip on that, fire it into the sun. 
because he made an argument that Jim's a better coach overall because uh, not only he wears khakis and um, that he has sleepovers because he cares about the family that much. He wants to protect them at night. <laughs> he said that you know his NFL career proves he's better than Saban. I'll give him uh, it's four years now, but give him a fifth year. He's now got that quarterback. You know Saban. He had all this recruiting. You know all this. It's just it's it mind it, it, it numbs me in my mind. I don't understand where people get paid five million dollars to say shit like that. But he ran the game. He hustled it. Props to him. But the thing to me that stands out out of all of this is the fact that. In February, the end of February, I sent a tweet out when that article came out for CBS that, you mark my words, somebody, cough, cough, Don Wolken, Colin, somebody, is going to say that Nick Saban is overrated as a head coach because all he did was recruit a shit ton of top talent and only, only won, at this point, five national championships, which we can say if he coaches another four years, add one or two. Like, just look at Florida State right now, for example. If you go back the past five or six years, how many programs recruit, have recruited better than Florida State? Maybe very, two very or few. Yeah, maybe two or three. And what are they doing on the field right now? So it's not as easy as, like, oh, highly rated guys show up on campus and you win. Like you have to do something with them when they get there. Well, see, what you're, you're not taking into consideration is you're using facts, and that is a huge problem. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's, let's move on here. Following the arrival of his first number one overall recruiting class, Saban won his first of five national championships at Alabama. The machine was running. Now he didn't even need to recruit. <laughs> Every, oh, everybody wanted to play for the national champions. Saban's early recruiting created a system in which the best players in the nation showed up on the Alabama campus, magically apparently, uh, won games and titles, got drafted into the NFL, and left a spot for the next round of the nation's top recruits <laughs> to take over. Oh god! Well, the kicker missed the bus. I'm gonna tell you that. <laughs> well, this, uh, I mean, this is this is comical already because now you're kind of crapping on the players. It's like backhanded compliments, as if these guys aren't, you know, working hard and developing and actually earning these NFL spots. All right. So one good example of development. Do, do you remember Reuben Foster's first start against West Virginia? Anybody? Oh yeah. It was not good. It wasn't great. Right. Dude, no, no. wait. Sorry. I'll take you back further than that. You remember Reuben Foster couldn't stop knocking himself out on the field. Yeah. With concussions and shoulder singers because he literally could not keep his head up when tackling. The Reuben missile. Yeah, so, like, if you watched Reuben Foster against West Virginia, you're thinking, hey, maybe this guy is not as good as what his rating was coming in. Like, maybe this dude wasn't a top five, top ten player in the country. Well, he left as one of the better linebackers that Nick Saban has ever coached. Correct? So, there, there's, like – direct correlation right this is development so these guys aren't just showing up as nfl superstars on campus but what do i know i i mean look the biggest proof of all of this is the fact that jake freaking coker's hand and footprint is at brian denny chimes i mean I, I would think that that's enough development to fit to work all right so the last little paragraph which this is this is pretty good too with this in mind five national titles really does not seem like enough oh. in, a, in an 11 year period Every season in recent memory, the Tide has had a national championship or bust mentality. If Saban were as good at being a head coach as he is at recruiting, Alabama would have won the national title on a yearly basis, but he isn't. It's a pretty high standard there for Ben Miller. If, if Nick Saban doesn't win the national championship literally every single year, it's... A, <laughs> it's I, he, he must hate guys like uh, Bill Belichick and uh, Greg Popovich or Mike Krzyzewski, those type of guys. <sighs> yeah, what does yeah, he, he think did. about Kentucky? Trivia time for the two of you guys. All when right. was the last team 
period. And we can go all the way back pre-1900s if you want to and start talking about the Minnesota dynasty. That won five national championships in a decade or even 12 to 15 years. Uh, I mean, Alabama, I would assume. Yeah, I would say that too. I mean, maybe, wait, Nebraska? No, I don't think they won five. Yeah, no, they didn't. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is Alabama. Maybe yeah, it'll be the, the Bear Bryant era. Yeah, in the 60s, right? And then, and then you have to go back before that. You have to go to Notre Dame during World War II. So, I mean, it's so easy to do that even Ben's great-grandfather expected Notre Dame to win the national championship every year, and he was pissed off and wrote an article that Notre Dame didn't. Um, it is what it, it, it just blows my mind. I mean, can you guys really sit there and think that we're supposed to win the national championship every year? Granted, how many games has it been that we're not in contention in the last 10 years for it? The Oklahoma, yeah, I mean, the Oklahoma game would be the only one I can think of, honestly. Michigan State, Capital One Bowl. Yeah, after that's the, right. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah, I think the 2010 season was probably the last time you could say they weren't actually in contention because even with, when they played the Oklahoma game in 2013, they were right there before the kick six. I think they beat Missouri. I think both Auburn and Alabama beat Missouri that year. And mm-hmm. Florida State's probably a toss-up. I don't know. They were really Florida State was really good in 2013. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's incredible because the simple fact is he builds it off of just how many trophies you have. Well, do you guys have a favorite record in college football or a stat in college football that, regardless of Alabama, you think cannot be touched? Uh, probably Oklahoma. They won 47 straight, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's that's going to be tough. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll say Barry Sanders' uh, Heisman Trophy season will probably be tough uh-huh. to me. <laughs> that year is wild. Um, my favorite is actually Florida State in the 90s. You know, you had 14, and actually 2000s, you had 14 straight years. They finished in the top four in the country. You talk about consistency, but how many national championships outright did they have? Uh, one. Yeah, just the one, right? Let me tell you, Ben would be really pissed off if he was a Florida State fan. So, Mark, as, as much as you were around, you know, the atmosphere of the media and everything, the last few years especially, um, as Saban caught up to bear this last national championship, do you think it truly is possible within not only the fan base but perception-wise that he not only number-wise the championships but overall with the people of the state and the fan base will pass him and college football overall as the greatest coach ever? I mean, I think there will always be a, a- – portion of the fan base older segment of the fan base will always hold bear in such a high regard because that's what they grew up on whether it be their parents or uh you know themselves and so i think it'll be tough for Saban to pass in that situation but i think if you look at it objectively it's it's hard for anybody to make the case for anybody other than the nick Saban. i mean you talk about the era he's doing it in different quarterbacks changes of the game you know you go from having run heavy offenses and 250, 260-pound linebackers to, you know, 215, 220-pound linebackers and, you know, throwing it all over the yard. The fact that he's been able to adapt and adjust to every single uh, change and also losing coordinators, losing assistant coaches. If you factor all that stuff in, I, I don't really think, you know, anybody has the type of resume to stack stack up against Nick Saban. I know a lot of people hold Bear up because, uh, you know, he, he was a great coach. I'm not saying he wasn't, but at the same time, I think a lot of it, it's it's mystique after the fact. Um, because of how big he was, I think he became a figure that was sort of bigger than the sport. Um, but if you look at if you look at just what they've done in terms of coaching, in terms and that of Nick's matching with six, if he gets seven, I don't think that's really a question. Well, I look forward to you uh, being brave and writing a column about how <laughs> underrated he is. So, 
All right, moving on. We're seeing a handful of players at Auburn actually taking advantage of the new redshirt rule. Uh, most notably, Nate Craig Myers leaving the program. Uh, if he played in five games, he'd lose a year of eligibility. Instead, he's leaving Auburn before his fourth game. Uh, so he'll, ha- he'll still have two years left somewhere else opposed to one at Auburn. Uh, I w- kind of want to get both of your views on this because I don't hate the rule like a lot of other people seem to hate it. Some view it as quitting on your team, which is understandable. Uh, but sometimes I feel like a, a kid kind of has to look out for his own interest. And it's it's not in any wide receiver's interest to be enrolled at Auburn. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all about uh, looking out for your own interests for the most part, especially at, at you know this level of, of sports. Because, I mean, honestly, coaches are going to look out for themselves. Universities are going to look out for themselves. Athletic departments are going to look out for themselves. So, the, who, so somebody has to look out for the player. Yeah. And and if if it's not the individual, who who will it be? You know, um, obviously you rather it not happen like this, where it's in the season and it sort of becomes a distraction. But really, there's no way to avoid it. I mean, this this rule's been put into place, and you know, guys are going to use it to their advantage. If they feel like their situation isn't going how they had hoped, you know, they're going to try to get out of there. Because I mean, these guys don't go to college for the most part. These guys don't go to college just to go. A lot of these guys have actual dreams of playing at the next level. Uh, and, and they they want to they have families they want to provide for. Some of them want to have kids of their own. Uh, some of them have parents or grandparents and and poor situations, and they want to try to get them out of. It. And, and if that means going to another school and boosting your draft status, who who am I to knock on these guys? I know it's easy to a lot of times people want to sit behind a keyboard and say, oh, I would never do that. Yeah, it's easy to say that because you're not you're not a six foot five high profile athlete with options, you know. So it's easy to say that behind your keyboard. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I think these guys have to, to a degree, look out for themselves. It's kind of well, like, kind of yeah. like the Cardell Jones. I'm not here to play school tweet. <laughs> <laughs> hey. I don't blame no, that, you. Oh, no, go go ahead, Brad. Sorry, that's a good example. No, no, you're good. I, I, I wanted to give you props for the research that you did uh, on that thread I saw this week. You put together evolving wide receivers because you know it was about a year ago now when uh, we did our debut episode for Roll Bama Roll that we talked about. You know, Auburn, Gus Malzahn, you know, the uh, lack of development in general that a quarterback guru such as Gus doesn't really have. Now, here we are actually realizing it's a bigger underlying problem in general down on the plains. And it's the fact that they can get the talent. But when it comes to wide receiver and skill position players, for the most part, they have a hard time developing it. Yeah. Do you, do you care if I, if I read this list real quick? Go ahead. Knock All right. Out. So. So I went back and looked at sort of the highly ranked wide receivers who made the mistake of signing with Auburn over the past decade. This is every single guy who has either finished at Auburn or is deep in their career there. This is not counting the underclassmen right now. So the five stars that they signed, they signed Trevon Trevon Reed. He played wide receiver his first four years. He switched to corner his senior season. He went undrafted. Duke Williams, top Juco player in the country, had a good first season. We all remember it. Uh, he was dismissed from the program during his second season, undrafted, playing in the, uh, the Canadian League. Their top 100 guys, four stars, Quan Bray, didn't have 1,000 total yards during his Auburn career, undrafted. Nate Craig Myers, he left today, 400 career yards, not looking like he's going to end up being drafted. Maybe he'll go to a different system, whatever. Kyle Davis, transferred to Florida Atlantic. Their top 200 four stars. The Goodwin kid and the Kitchens kid, both of them, you know, they had the armed robbery case. I don't know if you guys remember that. It may not be fair to include those two. Uh, Ricardo Lewis, he's their lone draft pick, fourth-round pick. He didn't even break 350 yards receiving until his senior year. You have Steven Slayton, Davis, Eli Stove. Uh, The most successful of those four was at 1,100 career yards. None of them were drafted. 
So if you're a top 100 receiver, you're doing your research, you find all of this, and you still decide to sign with Auburn, like, do you, or do you think that you're going to be different than these 12 guys? you, you got to hope you're going to break the streak, I guess, just like a kicker, <laughs> you know, for Alabama. I mean, we got the number one kicker coming in next year. We hope he's going to break the streak. I mean, you hope as a skill position guy going into Auburn with Gus, you know, now that they did that massive extension because he won that game that was meaningless last year in, in the end of November – that he's going to be that difference maker and, and make it to the next league and, and, you know, actually produce overall. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. I mean, if you just look at our system, they don't really highlight the receiver in sort of the traditional sense where you're, you're like, Hey, I'm a go-to receiver at Auburn. Um, yeah. I'm not sure why highly rated receivers would go there. And, but I mean, it could also be a case of where these guys maybe aren't as talented as, as we perceived them to be, you know, coming out of high school, because you know, I look at a team like Alabama look, go back to the early days um, you know, back when Julio Jones was here, obviously he was such an incredible talent, but it wasn't like they were throwing it all over the yard. I mean, he was he just was so talented that you, you had to recognize him on the field, and, and I think that's why draft scouts were still so high on him, whereas some of these Auburn guys or some of just guys in general may be highly rated, but they just may not be as talented as we think they are. Yeah, so it could be an evaluation problem as well. I mean, so I would say it's probably both evaluation and development. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. it's hard to, you know, develop when you're running in that offense because you know the receiver is sort of a a a super last resort in the sense where all right well if the running back runs your way and then the db comes off you go off and then you'll catch this open pass but we're not actually going to be calling too many plays uh for you and and it it seems like they feature the ryan davis kid he seems to be really good but he's not you know your prototypical nfl type guy Uh, he's more like a slot receiver but at the same time you know i couldn't couldn't really name you any receivers uh, that have been big time at Auburn. I know they had Duke Williams recently, but he kind of flamed out. Uh, Sammy was a fast guy, but he didn't really do much in the NFL. So maybe these guys just aren't as talented as, as, we, as we think they are. Yeah, and, and building off of that, you know, Wes, I had a stat looking back now after the uh, Auburn loss this weekend at home to LSU uh, about Jarrett Sidham going back to a year ago with us talking about Gus not developing quarterbacks, really. I have some stats about in his wins and in his losses while he's at Auburn. In 12 wins, Jarrett Sidham has a completion percentage of 76%, 22 touchdowns, 8 turnovers, 170 passer rating, and he only has a 4.6% sack rate. But in five losses, he's only completing 53% of his passes, 4 touchdowns, 6 turnovers. Passer rating's right at 100, and he gets sacked over 13% of the time. So it's a night and day difference. You know, it's almost like, the skill position may play a factor into that, too, if the defense can lock on and shut that down. Yeah, I think one of the things to note with Auburn, just in their offense in general, if when the, when the years they've had like a bell cow running back, a guy like a Carrion Johnson uh, or Trey Mason that they can give it to, you know, 20, 25 or more times a game, they've been really good. But if they don't have that guy, then everybody looks mediocre. And I think Carrion Johnson, I mean, I think uh, Jared Sidham is really missing that sort of safety blanket at running back. I don't think they have that guy uh, in, in the group of guys. Peyton, uh, I guess Peyton Barber's still there. Maybe some of the other guys. They don't really have anybody that you can say, okay, this is this is a, a bell cow at running back. Kind of going back to like the, the original thought of the, that started this whole conversation. But you know, we were talking about the Auburn players kind of leaving early, so they saved that year of eligibility. I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next week or so, kind of throughout college football, guys that want to preserve that that eligibility. Do you see potentially any players at Alabama doing this? No, I don't think so. I think the system is set up here uh, for the most part for guys to be focused on the team goal. And I, I think, too, and this I'm glad you asked me that question because this reminds me of my favorite all-time quote from Ryan Anderson. 
back when a bunch of guys were sitting uh, out the bowl games, like I think Leonard Fournette, Chris, Christian McCaffrey set out, and somebody goes up to Ryan and asks him that. He's like, man, we're not playing in the Louisiana Crawfish Bowl or the Birmingham Biscuit Bowl. So it's a lot easier to stay motivated and locked in when you know, okay, every single year I'm going to be competing for a national championship, chance to go to the college football playoff every single year. Uh, so it's a lot easier to say, all right, I'm going to give it my all. Uh, for this team and not move on. And I think Alabama's really set it up that way because you, you've seen guys wait their turn. We talked about Reuben Foster earlier, a guy who had to wait two years before he gets his chance. He goes on. He's he's probably one of the top uh, inside linebackers in the NFL if he can stay healthy. So uh, I think it's a proven system here at Alabama where guys have seen guys wait their turn and still go on to have a ton of success uh, at the NFL. So I don't think it's really like that at, at a lot of places. So I don't expect that to happen at Alabama. Well, Mark, could you see, though, like a, a free agency, so to speak, within this of why, you know, just like Coach Saban, he was opposed uh, with this whole rule in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely can see the free agency part of it, because if if I'm a player and I'm looking around, I'm thinking, OK, maybe I haven't gotten my opportunities that I was supposed to get. Let me look around and see who, who else is out there. I'll, I can still have two years left. Why not transfer? I mean, like I said, it goes back to the somebody's got to look out for the players, and sometimes it's going to be them. It may not always be the best interest, be in the best interest of that particular team that they're on, but you know, sometimes guys have to be a little selfish if if you want to get to where you want to get in life. Uh, and yeah, I can definitely see a, a free agency sort of situation, and I'll be really interested to see how this year goes because if if we do see a bunch of guys start pulling shoot early, uh, will they have to revisit this rule completely? Yeah, we're gonna yeah. find. Yeah, we're gonna find out a lot right after this fourth game and before the fifth. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, see, that's, that's that's what I wonder with the amount of quarterbacks that, you know, started transferring over the last five years compared to the five years before, and now the amount of overall top talent, you know, big-name players um, that aren't getting that time they want that just say, you know, the hell with it, let's go somewhere else, and then it just – it's a floodgate. All right, well, finally, Alabama takes on Texas A&M, 2.30 Saturday. Uh, we did have a Twitter question from Mark. If Alabama beats A&M handily, does that tell us anything about Clemson? Uh, say Alabama covers the spread, wins by four touchdowns. Would you put any stock into that as it relates to Clemson, or would you kind of brush that off as like a transitive property type deal? Yeah, I definitely brush it off. I mean, I, I don't think – I think the conditions are different. Alabama gets them at home. Clemson was on the road. Uh, A&M is actually a, a tough, to pl- tough place to play if you don't go there very often. And, and if you go back and look at that game, for the most part, Clemson was up, you know, two scores uh, for the most part. A&M made that, made that late run. Made it made it really close and made it kind of uh, crazy there at the end. But at the same time, I just think Clemson was a much better team. I think Clemson is one of the two or three teams in the country where you can say, okay, maybe they could compete compete with Alabama uh, this year. I think Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, maybe Oklahoma. I, I don't know how I feel about them just yet. But yeah, I, I think if Alabama beats Texas A&M handily, I don't really think that'll say anything about Clemson in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that game against Clemson at home at night, uh, Kyle Field, you know, already said a lot about what Jimbo's doing, you know, inside that locker room and, and the plan he has overall for Texas A&M. However, if he can keep it under the spread, which I hope they don't because I got money over the spread, um, then that only builds for what Jimbo can do then on the road recruiting because we all know, as we mentioned earlier, what he is as a recruiter, period, which, you know, we're not going to get into that. But I think... Texas A&M's best bet is to come at, you know, the way they did with Clemson, which is to try to do the things they did of maintaining the possession. Having Kellen Munn rub the genie lamp a time or two, I mean, because I don't know where that kid came from in that game. It was impressive as hell. 
But we've also seen Clemson kind of be sluggish this year overall with who they've played to on offense at times as well. So I don't know. I don't want to do the transitive property thing. But as I told you last week, Wes, I think until I'm proven wrong, Tua covers the spread in the first half. I have to go that way. Yeah, also one of the, kind of one of the things that stands out to me with a and is their lack of star power at receiver. You know, with Ole Miss last week, we discussed, hey, is this the best group of receivers in the country? And it, and it may be, top two at worst. Of course, we know they lost Christian Kirk, but they lost their top two receivers, top two tight ends from last season. And with the way Alabama's secondary played against Ole Miss's group, it's kind of hard to see the receivers at A&M doing much damage, honestly. Well, if you look at that kid, uh, who's I can't remember, I don't know his name, but number 13 for A&M, man, he looked incredible against Clemson. He had the one touchdown uh, come across the – Back of the end zone, uh, and he was a guy who got folded up on that play, and it looked like his legs were going to get snapped in half, but he bounced right back <laughs> up. Uh, yeah, I mean, he—he, he lo- I don't know his name. He's probably not a household name yet, but he definitely looked like one of those. A&M seems to every single year have a guy who's like six five, former basketball player, jumps out of the gym, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's just just an incredible physical specimen at wide receiver. Uh, I feel like they've had that guy pretty much ever since they came to the SEC, and I think this guy's the newest one. Well, if any receiver gets any type of recognition at A&M, it's historically been a game against Alabama for the most part. So we'll see what happens after this weekend. Looks like Kendrick Rogers is number 13. I don't know if you guys watched that Clemson, Clemson game, but yeah. the whole game, but he catches a pass and the, guy, the Clemson defender goes for his legs. You know, it's a clean tackle, but he, like, I'm telling you, he almost snapped in half. It's one of those things you're like, oh my God, I hope yeah, they don't Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His legs yeah. done. And he just bounces up and tries to keep running. I'm like, what, what in the hell? One more point about Mon. Yeah, I mean, he, he played out of his mind against Clemson, and that's one of those things where you can kind of get that spirited performance uh, at home when you got the crowd behind you under the lights and his kid's probably playing a little bit above his talent level, but and that may not travel on the road. So it's, it's probably going to definitely look different uh, against Alabama on Saturday. Yeah, and I almost wonder how much of their stock they put into that Clemson game being a you know, primetime game day, everything like that as well. Um, that's a good point. Yeah, so we're going to learn a lot about Texas A&M and the direction they're going based on how they play. But to be honest with you, Alabama's, I think, uh, one of only four teams in the country right now that's uh, 3-0 and versus uh, the spread. So I'm not going against it. It's like I'm playing roulette. I say the tide covers. And I do think, though, that A&M, if they try to take that approach of maintaining possession, trying to control the clock, they're going to lose because Bama's already scored 40 to 50 points before halftime on average right now anyways, so uh, they don't need much time as it is. Uh, Mark, does, they, or do, does uh, Alabama cover? Yeah, I think they will. And to, to Brad's point about, you know, A&M try, if they were to try to play sort of ball control, I think this, this Alabama offense is too explosive. So they don't even need the, the long 10, 12-play drives anymore. I mean, you talk about three or four plays and boom – uh, you know, they've already dropped six on you. So I, I think it's, it's going to be really hard for teams to figure out a way to to uh, attack this team out of that offense as, as reached sort of Super Saiyan level. Yeah, because when we look back at Alabama historically overall as a program, um, right now this 2018 uh, team is the most points ever for Alabama after three games. They have 167 total points. Uh, second is 1922, and they had 158 points. And even back then, Alabama still didn't play anybody on, you know, a true home and home. So, um, <laughs> man, they were but, slinging it around back in the 20s. Uh, yeah, let me tell you, uh, the Leatherheads, uh, they did not want to go north. Um, there was some 5'8 white dude that was just running crazy. 
(laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, and then there was a couple other stats I had saw that had came out, you know, like with Tua, the ball, you know, he's only thrown the ball 50 times in three games, 36 out of 50, 646 on yards, eight touchdowns, no interceptions, 72% completion. I had seen another thing that came out. Uh, It was from some guy named Mark, um, something about he has – you know, 20 drives that he's led and 14 of those end with a touchdown or a field goal. And they're scoring 75% of the time as a team with two at quarterback, you know, yeah, and props, what, to, props to that Mark guy for doing the math. Yeah. And I was going to say, one of the things I even forgot, well, that Mark guy forgot to include was the two fumbles. Uh, you know, I think Devonte Smith had one and then uh, it was a Henry Ruggs. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you factor in that, who knows? I mean, you could, potentially add two more touchdowns or another touchdown and field goal or something like that. So, I mean, they're scoring at an insane clip when when, when he's back there under center. And I'm sure they, they probably missed a field goal in uh, one of those drives. I have to go back and look. But So, so anyway, the point is three out of four times he, he's putting points on your head. So, there's not going to be a lot of ball control options against this offense. No, it feels like there's a combination now that Alabama has tapped into, and I tweeted this out in the Arkansas uh, Arkansas State game. If Alabama has the refs and the gods on their side, y'all are just screwed. And right now, Alabama's been getting calls their way for once, and they're putting up points, no problem. And, I mean, it, this is going to be very entertaining. You're going to have an offense that can score and a defense that won't allow you to score. I have a feeling the chapped asses are only going to get more chapped and uh, speaking of that, uh, I want to give Danny Cannell a shout-out for finally accepting his uh, fate uh, that Alabama controls this world, and we're just all here. So I couldn't believe, definitely, I couldn't believe what I was reading there. That tweet from Cannell definitely felt like one of those blink-twice moments. If you're, if you're <laughs> <laughs> he just gave, he gave up, man. He gave up. <laughs> you know he's like sitting at home like, oh, man, if Ole Miss can score one more time, like I, I can delete this tweet. But it was, it was just too much for him. Yeah, he's giving up. All right, well, you heard it from Brad and Mark. Alabama covers. If they don't, blame them. Uh, This has been the Roll Bama Roll podcast. Roll Tide.